forgot to get myself water this morning, and I don't want it to be a dry sermon. John chapter 20. Read verses 11 through 18. Actually, I think I'll start right at the beginning of the chapter, just as a reminder of where we are here in the um, gospel according to John. So John chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Lord, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Let's pray again. Father, I pray that you would help us to understand, that we would have ears to hear what you would say to us this morning through this passage. And Lord, I pray that we would not only understand, but that we would believe. Help our unbelief, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so I've said many times um, that the gospel is not something that you can do. You cannot be the gospel. So the gospel, which means, that word means good news, it's a message to be proclaimed, Now, Christians are called to be Christ-like. We're called to live in holiness. And along with that, several New Testament passages remind us that we have been saved to do good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So there are things that we must do. But doing good works, so some people will use the phrase, being the hands and feet of Christ, while good and important and necessary, that's not the gospel. It might be the, the outworking of the, of the gospel in a person's life, 
And as I said, they might be and probably are good and necessary things. But at some point, words must actually be spoken. The message must actually be proclaimed because the gospel itself is a message. It's a truth to be preached or proclaimed. It's something that can be written down and explained. Namely, that Jesus Christ was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. That's Romans 4.25. But this idea that the, that the gospel is a message to be preached, that's what the apostle Paul is arguing for in Romans chapter 10, especially verses 8 to 17. Turn over there for a moment to Romans chapter 10. I want to read these verses, verses 8 through 17, and see if we can make this connection. So Romans 10, 8 says this, but what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Christians are to be heralds of the good news. Peter, in fact, will say it like this. He tells us that we are to be always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Always able or always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. We are to be apologists for the faith, able to give a ready defense In this morning's passage here in John chapter 20, we're going to see the first proclamation of the truth that Jesus has risen. But before we get there, now I want you to go back in time about 600 or so years to a prophecy from the prophet Jeremiah. So turn back into the Old Testament now, Jeremiah chapter 31. I promise you we will get to John chapter 31. 20 here in a moment, but I want to set this up in Jeremiah chapter 31. Um, I'm going to read the first 14 verses and then we will skip to the end of the chapter or nearer the end of the chapter and I'm going to read another paragraph. So Jeremiah 31 starts like this. At that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the clans of Israel and they shall be my people. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness 
when Israel sought for rest. The Lord appeared to him from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Again, I will build you, and you shall be built, O virgin Israel. Again, you shall adorn yourself with tambourines and shall go forth in the dance of the merrymakers. Again, you shall plant vineyards on the mountains of Samaria. The planters shall plant and shall enjoy the fruit. For there shall be a day when watchmen will call in the hill country of Ephraim, Arise and let us go up to Zion to the Lord our God. For thus says the Lord, Sing aloud with gladness for Jacob and raise shouts for the chief of the nations. Proclaim, give praise and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. Behold, I will bring them from the north country and gather them from the furthest parts of the earth, among them the blind and the lame, the pregnant woman and she who is in labor together. A great company they shall return here. With weeping they shall come, and with pleas for mercy I will lead them back. I will make them walk by brooks of water in a straight path in which they shall not stumble, for I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn." Hear the words of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the coastlands far away. Say, he who scattered Israel will gather him, and he will keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob. He has redeemed him from hands too strong for him. And they shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion, and they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, and the oil, and over the young of the flock and the herd. Their life shall be like a watered garden, and they shall languish no more. Then shall the young women rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old men shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them. And give them gladness for sorrow. I will feast the soul of the priests with abundance. And my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. Now skip ahead to verse 31. Same chapter, Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them up out of the hand of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people." And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. And we know that Christ enacted this new covenant on the cross. And so we eat and we drink to remember and to renew covenant every time we come to the table. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, Jesus said. Do this in remembrance of me. The proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ is a natural outflow of a heart that has been given new life. It's the joy that comes from a a new believer who has been completely born again forgiven of their sins and and raised to walk in newness of life. We've seen this same story repeated throughout the church age. I've given you this history before, but let me just briefly give it to you again. 
history of the church. Less than a decade after the risen Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene in the garden here, um, in about 42 AD, John Mark, the author of the Gospel according to Mark, moved to Egypt. He went there on mission to proclaim the Gospel of Jesus. In about 49 AD, the Apostle Paul went to Turkey. And then in 51 AD, a couple years later, Paul then goes from Turkey to Greece, which was an incredibly important cultural and and economic global center. In 52 AD, we believe that the Apostle Thomas brought the good news to India. In 54 AD, Paul set out on his third missionary journey, again through Turkey and Greece, followed a couple years later by his fourth trip, which took him at least to Rome, the capital of the Roman Empire. Possibly he made it to Spain, which was his desire, although there's some doubt about whether he actually made it to Spain or not. So jump ahead now. 174 AD, the first Christians are reported in what is known as Austria. In 280, the first rural churches are founded in northern Italy. Until this time, churches were mostly in cities, but now they're beginning to be found in the countryside. By AD 350, 53% of the Roman Empire confessed Christianity, and so much so that the Emperor Constantine legalized Christianity and then, of course, made it the state religion. In 432, St. Patrick went to Ireland with the gospel, and we've given him his own day to commemorate that. In 596, Gregory the Great sent a man named Augustine and a missions team to England. They settled in Canterbury, and it's said that within a year they baptized 10,000 people. In 635, the first missionaries reached mainland China. In the year 740, Irish monks with roots back to St. Patrick traveled to Iceland. In 900 AD, missionaries make it to Norway. By the year 1200, the Bible had been translated into 22 different languages. In 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue, and he opened up a whole new world for evangelistic endeavors. In 1498, the first Christians were reported in Kenya, which is on the east coast of Africa, Central Africa. On October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses on the door of the church at Wittenberg in Germany in an act that would come to be known as the beginning of the Protestant Reformation, ensuring for centuries to come that the doctrine of justification by faith alone would be the central message of the gospel. In the year 1554, there were 1,500 Christians living in Thailand, In 1555, John Calvin and his Geneva church had planted five churches in the nation of France. Four years later, they planted a hundred churches in France. By 1562, Calvin's church in Geneva, which is in Switzerland, with the help of some of their sister cities and and churches, had planted more than 2,000 churches in France, and some of those churches were beginning to send missionaries to the New World, to Brazil. In 1620, the Puritan pilgrims fled persecution in England and established Plymouth Colony in Massachusetts. In 1743, David Brainerd began his missionary work to the Native Americans in the vast interior of the United States. Early in the month of March, 1809, James Moore and Robert Dixon began from the interior of the state of Kentucky the long and tedious journey to Logan County, Ohio. 
Early in the summer of the year 1815, a circuit-riding preacher from the New Light Christian Faith from Cane Ridge, Kentucky, came to the settlement of Logansville and announced a meeting in a farmhouse. By 1824, a regular church had been established, meeting in a small log building in what is probably now our parking lot. In 1876, the former structure, the old church building that we tore down a few years ago, was built. And by 1881, the church had called its first regular minister, a man by the name of Thomas Hester. Jump forward 100 years to the mid-1980s, the pastor of a small church in Epsom, New Hampshire, by the name of John Spring, regularly and faithfully began preaching through books of the Bible, including the gospel according to John. And at some point during that time, your preacher was convinced of his need for salvation. I repented of my sins and trusted in Christ for salvation. I also met my wife. In 1990, sensing a need for a larger meeting space, and in preparation for the present day and probably what God will do yet in the future, this building was built. In September of 2001, Christine and I, along with six-month-old Zachary and two-and-a-half-year-old Wesley, moved to Xenia, Ohio, where I would begin my studies at Cedarville University to be a history teacher. But as usual, God had other things in mind. I studied the Bible more and more and became convinced of my calling. Um, he was calling and preparing me for ministry. And so on January 1st, 2012, Logansville Church called me to serve as pastor. January 1st, 2020, Logansville Church, after tripling in number, called Ben Bean to serve as the assistant pastor. In the year 2024, Logansville Church will celebrate its 200th anniversary, four years, less than four years. So what caused the gospel to leave the Garden of Gethsemane? What caused the gospel to leave the Garden of Gethsemane, travel to Jerusalem, and, and spread through Turkey and Greece and Austria and England and Massachusetts and Kentucky and, and land here? Well, it's because it, it truly is good news. And Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And it all started when he turned Mary's mourning into joy. We saw last week and in those first opening verses of this chapter that Mary Magdalene truly loved her Savior. He had delivered her and she had supported him, she had followed him, and she was even there at the cross and now again at the tomb. She was the one that, that John focused on as she found the, the stone rolled away and immediately ran to Simon Peter and the other disciple with the news. The stone has been rolled away as we saw in her confusion, and yet out of the deep love with which she loved her deliverer, she went to the place that she knew, the last place that he had been and what should have been his final resting place. But the stone was rolled away. The tomb was empty. And as we pick this up, the others have returned home at this point. And we see Mary's devotion to Jesus, yet we also see her weeping. So that was a long introduction. It's actually an illustration of the application here. But let's dig into this passage that begins with Mary weeping. Look again at verses 11 and 12. Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. 
Now, when we read those two verses, John 20, verses 11 and 12, our minds naturally, naturally cling to the appearance of these two, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> the two angels in verse 12. Our minds naturally cling to the two angels, but John, all along through this, John is directing our attention to look at Mary. Look at Mary. Don't miss Mary. So don't miss her in verse 11. She's weeping. In fact, twice it says in that one verse, she is weeping. She's wept. She had run to the disciples, who had in turn run to the tomb, and so presumably they beat her there. They investigated as she walked up. And so she probably arrives back at the garden here as they left to go back home, and she lingers weeping outside this empty tomb. Mary's love and devotion to her Savior has brought her back to the only place that she could think of, the last place that he had been, and now he's not even there. Now it is empty. Think of what she has experienced over the last four or five days. She's probably exhausted. She is probably just emotionally spent. She had witnessed the crucifixion. She was there. She had witnessed what they had done to him. She had seen him die. She had seen the sky turn dark. She had heard his words from the cross. Verse 8 tells us above that, that John, when he finally entered into the tomb, he saw and believed but Mary isn't yet thinking like this. She's, she's still thinking, maybe even panicking a bit, about where his body could have been taken. Two times she says this. She asks this to the angels and, and also to this man that she thought was the gardener. Where is he? Yet in her confusion, in her sorrow, in her even disbelief or lack of belief in his resurrection at this point, this is about to be confronted because for whatever reason... Maybe she needed to see for herself, or we really don't know why. For whatever reason, while still weeping, she stoops to look into the tomb where she saw, again, verse 12, two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at, his head and, or one at the head and one at the feet. Isn't it strange, picture this scene, isn't it strange that Peter and John, the other disciple, who'd run into the tomb, Peter in particular, who had examined the linens, who had pondered what, what could possibly have happened here. Isn't it strange that they didn't see the angels? Not really. This reminds me, even this scene and the appearance of the angels to Mary, reminds me of the angelic appearances surrounding his birth. Who, who would believe the Virgin Mary? his mother, when she started to tell people that she was pregnant. Who, who would believe her? Nobody. Very few people. Joseph, after he was comforted by the angels. Who would believe Joseph? What about the shepherds who were watching their flocks by night? When the angels appeared to them. The angels appeared to Mary, to Joseph, to the shepherds, announcing Who'd believe these people? I think there are two reasons that these angels appeared to Mary. And the first has to do really with the work of angels. 
So Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14 tells us that angels are, quote, verse 14 says this, ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. They're ministering spirits sent to believers, tells us. Now, of course, Peter and John will inherit salvation, but the one who needed to be ministered to most was the one who was weeping here. Mary was nearly overcome with grief, and these angels have been sent as ministers to her, even though it probably, probably only lasted for a couple of brief seconds because Jesus shows up pretty quickly. But they are ministers to her, telling her the truth or asking her why she is crying, pointing out that the truth is about to be revealed to you. And the second reason I think these angels appeared to Mary fits the pattern of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 25 to 31, which says this, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Mary is about to send a message, and God chose the least likely person to deliver that message, Mary Magdalene. Should have chosen Peter and John, right? They were there. Peter is the leader of the apostles. Peter goes on to write a couple of books of the Bible. John wrote a whole bunch of the New Testament. These guys will be used by God, but the first person was the least of these, Mary Magdalene. Now, of course, those words from 1 Corinthians chapter 1 could be written about any of us, and even Peter and John, frankly. But the worldly standards, by these worldly standards of the day, you couldn't get much lower and more despised than Mary Magdalene. But the ministry of the angels is always to glorify God. And Mary needed this ministry. But before we move to their question in verse 13, I want to point out the imagery of the scene here in verse 12, what she sees. This is a living picture of the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant. These angels were sitting on each end of the, of the slab where his body had been placed. On the Ark of the Covenant, covenant, that place was called the mercy seat or the place of propitiation. I want you to listen just briefly to the Lord's description of this from Exodus chapter 25, verses 21 and 22. So the Lord himself says this in describing the construction of the Ark of the Covenant. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the Ark. And in the Ark you shall put the testimony, that is the word, that I shall give you. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the Ark of the Testimony, I will speak with you about all that I give you in, the, uh, give you in commandment for the people of Israel. This is where God will speak to his prophet. 
This is the Holy Spirit's subtle way here through the Apostle John of reminding us that God has spoken from the mercy seat. And when Mary saw these two angels dressed in white sitting on either end of this mercy seat, she should have known that it was going to be okay. It's all going to be okay. Remember, the gospel tells us that angels were sent to serve and to minister to and for even Jesus. So think about Jesus' ministry. At every turning point in his life, there are angels present. His conception announced that the child would be the Messiah. At his birth, Hosanna. At his temptation, the angels came and fed him and ministered to him. His prayer in the garden just before his arrest, Luke tells us that there was an angel ministering to him. And now here at the tomb, proclaiming, why are you weeping? These angels provide a a tangible reminder of God's almighty presence and his promise to redeem his people. And as the story continues now, Mary asks a question, or she has asked a question. Woman, why are you weeping? Look at verse, let's pick it up in 13. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but She did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Lord, or sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. The the duty of the angels um, in this passage was to be seen, to ask the one question, and then to disappear from the scene entirely, never to be mentioned again. Presumably, Mary um, recounted this to John so that he could write it here in his account of the gospel. And so she must have figured out at some point along the line, at some point later, that these two figures were in fact angels, but for the moment she is still preoccupied with Jesus' missing body. Now this is understandable since she had just witnessed his horrific crucifixion just a couple of days earlier. And that's the whole reason even that she was here at his grave. The other Gospels tell us that they had gone in order to prepare his body uh, since he had been hastily buried. But picture this. Mary has come here to the mercy seat, and yet she is weeping. She is preoccupied with disbelief. She's believing something that is not correct. She's believing that someone has removed Christ's body. She's believing something that will come to be a lie promoted by the Sanhedrin, that his body was actually taken. And the angels here are no substitute for the Messiah. In her grief, they can't even comfort her. They can just ask her a simple question. She needs Jesus. Mary's greatest need is to know and to believe that Jesus has been raised from the dead. Her greatest need is to know and see the truth. But how can she believe unless someone tells her? At this point, her grief really seems to outweigh the amazing grace that she doesn't even know that she's witnessing. Her grief is in front of her eyes and the mercy seat is blurry and in the background. When she answers the angel's question here in verse 13 and 14, we can see that 
She can't see the empty tomb as we can now see the empty tomb. This tomb no longer symbolizes death. All she can see is the death of the tomb. What is going on? We know that the empty tomb symbolizes life now. And these angels know this. So for their part, they're asking a real question. Why are you weeping? Why why are you weeping? Don't you know what's happened here? Why are you weeping? They know what's happened, and they don't understand why on earth she would still be crying. Why is she still grieving? First Peter gives us a little bit of insight into this in chapter 1, uh, verses 10, 11, and 12 says this. Peter explains salvation. He says, concerning this salvation... The prophets who prophesied, so he's talking about the Old Testament writers, prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. Things meaning salvation, the glories of Jesus' resurrection, dying for our sins, raising for our justification. Peter is saying the scriptures testify to these things and these are the things that angels long to understand. They long to look. Angels do not experience the grace of salvation. They don't experience redemption or restoration. They know and proclaim the glories of the resurrection, yet they long to look into the grace and mercy that Christ shows only to his own, only to those whom he has saved, he has redeemed. Why are you weeping? We don't understand. So she turns to see this man who asks her essentially the same question. Again, verse 15, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And she responds the same way. Where is he? Oh, if you took him, please let me know so that I can take care of his body. It's a strange thing to say. She's grieving. She's confused. She just sees someone in the garden. She assumes he's a gardener. It's not that Jesus is unrecognizable um, physically. Uh, He had been essentially beaten to a pulp Friday, and now here on early Sunday morning, he's up and around and walking, and she would have recognized him if he uh, allowed her to. It really wasn't that her eyes were so swollen shut from her weeping that she couldn't make him out. Really what's happening here is he is slowly opening her eyes. He is slowly giving her understanding of what's happened. She was prevented from knowing and seeing him for who he really is. But just for a moment. See, this is nothing that Mary does. This is what Christ does for her. And this is what salvation really looks like. Mary sees and recognizes him when? When he calls her. When he calls her name, Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. 
She sees him and recognizes him when he calls her, when he speaks her name. She immediately recognizes him. This is what John chapter 10, verse 27 looks like. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. This is Isaiah 43, verse 1, which says, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. But this is not where the story ends. There's more to be done. His work is not yet finished. He must be seen by several people who would go on to to testify to his resurrection. In fact, John's going to spend the rest of this chapter explaining who he uh, appears to. He also has some more teaching to do. He needs to restore Peter. We'll see that here in chapter 21. He needs to commission the apostles to send them out. And then finally, he needs to ascend He needs to, as as Hebrews says, pass through the heavens where he would sit down at the right hand of God and wait from that time until his enemies would be made a footstool for his feet so that we may then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need because Jesus Christ always lives to make intercession for the saints. And so Jesus commissions her with a message to proclaim. Look at verse 17. This is a message to proclaim. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. You can see here in in the risen Christ's response, you can see her love and joy. It's implied in this. She must have been hugging him, right? You can imagine her her emotions have just flooded. And she's hanging on to him. It's important to not see in that moment, in Jesus' words, to not see him as, ah, I'm not a hugger. It's, It's important to not see Jesus like that. He's not pushing her away. Instead, he's really saying two things. When he says, do not cling to me, He's assuring her that she's not going to lose him again. She's not going to lose him again. She's clinging to him. Now, maybe, it doesn't actually tell us, maybe she's physically hanging on to him. Maybe she's just afraid to to ever leave his side. But, But either way, he's offering her assurance Remember the assurance that he gives to to all of his own? We sang it this morning. I will never leave you nor forsake you. He had said back in the upper room, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. And so when he tells her not to cling to him, he's asking her to trust him because he is going to the Father's side. And the second thing that he is saying to her is this, his death and his resurrection has forever changed the relationship that God has with his people. God the Father, God the Son, and as we will see soon, God the Spirit. His relationship is forever changed with his people. Go to my brothers and say, go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. God the Father, God the Son, and as they're going to soon see here, even in in the next section, God the Spirit. This new covenant has been enacted. Listen to Ezekiel chapter 37. Verse 24 uh, says this, 
My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in all my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers did, lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever, and David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them. I will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. Christ dwells with his people. He has not left us as orphans. He has, in fact, given us the Holy Spirit to be with us forever until that time when we see him face to face, when he dwells with us forever. This new covenant that both Ezekiel and Jeremiah have spoken of has been enacted. And so he sends her on mission. Go and tell them the good news, he says. Go and tell them. Go and tell my brothers. Go evangelize them, he says. Tell them that, that he will ascend to the Father and that Psalm 110 verse 1 is about to come to pass. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This is all about to happen. Jesus says to her, go tell them. And Mary proclaimed, I have seen the Lord. Look at verse 18. And Mary went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And that he had said these things to her. Mary Magdalene was the first to the empty tomb. She was the first to see the risen Christ. And she's the first to evangelize, to go and preach this good news. I have seen the Lord. Mary was the first whose mourning had been turned to joy by the good news that Jesus Christ has been raised for her justification. Now, I hinted at the application at the beginning when we watched the gospel spread through uh, to the ends of the earth, really here at the end of the earth in Logansville. But let me give you three kind of gospel notes here to take with you this afternoon. Three things to think through. Just three words. Hope, compassion, and love. Hope. Hope. Even in our grieving, and we know that Christians... Um, will sometimes grieve in the sorrow of life lived under the sun. But even in the face of death, as Christians, we grieve, right? But 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 tells us that we may not grieve as others who have no hope. In our grieving, in our grieving, whether that is because of death or because of sickness or because we live in this crazy world of 2020, in our grieving, we must never forget the resurrected Jesus Christ and the hope that he gives. Our hope, is not, our hope is not on November 3rd. Our hope is not going to be found in any man. Our hope is only in Jesus Christ. Hope. Second is compassion. Jesus, on the morning of his resurrection... Think of the work that he has just accomplished. He has now just defeated sin and death. 
Jesus Christ has just uh, had victory in this cosmic battle, and yet he calls Mary by name. He stops and he approaches Mary, Mary Magdalene, who is weeping. He approaches Mary and he calls her by name. And he, right there, truly fulfills Psalm 34, verse 18, which says this, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. The disciples didn't love, Mary, uh, didn't love Jesus less than Mary did. But the focus isn't on them here. The focus is on a woman who was so broken that Jesus has been taken from her. Her Savior, her Deliverer, is now gone. And I don't even know where his body is. And Jesus approaches her, this broken-hearted woman, and he is near to her, and he saves her. Mary, he says. Jesus sees. He sees you. He hears you, and he knows. John Calvin, in writing about this, he said this. In Mary, we have, this in Mary, we have a lively image of our calling. For the only way in which we are admitted to the true knowledge of Christ is by that voice with which he especially calls the sheep which the Father has given to him. He says, Mary. Hope and compassion. And the third is love. So now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Christ loves Mary Magdalene. Again, the world really only understands this in romantic terms, but that is not true. This is the love of John 13, verse 1. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Or from 1 John, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. His love calls your name and brings your faith and hope to life. He calls you, he gives you eyes to see and ears to hear. His love is the love of one who died for our sins and rose for our justification. Hope, compassion, and love. And the greatest of these is love. Christ's love for us. Pray with me. Father, as we look at this and we see Christ's love, we can see it as he calls Mary. Just by saying her name, we can see the love of Christ. We can see her eyes being opened as she recognizes him. Lord, it is our prayer today that our eyes would be opened, that we would understand your deep love for us. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Lord, as we come to the table this morning, it is our prayer that we would grow in our knowledge and understanding, but also, Lord, that we would grow in our love for Christ, our love for our Father, you, God the Father, who sent Jesus Christ, your only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Lord, we thank you for this new covenant, the promise that you will be with your people, that you will dwell with them forever. 
that you will be our God and that we will be your people. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.